You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels. This is translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 8, given in Zurich on the 19th of November, 1909, entitled The Matthew Gospel and the Enigma of Christ. In Switzerland, over the last two years, it has been possible to speak about an exceptionally important spiritual scientific subject, fundamentally the loftiest there is in spiritual science, the enigma of Christ. And if large numbers of today's population outside this spiritual scientific movement think this the simplest of themes to be discussed, those modern people are in one sense right. What constitutes the greatest factor for earth and human evolution, Christ's power, Christ's impetus, has certainly had the effect that the simplest, most naive of souls can in some way come to an understanding of it. On the other hand, this impulse has had such an effect that no earthly wisdom can suffice truly to understand the events of Palestine at the start of our calculated era to comprehend what took place for humanity and actually for the entire cosmos. This mystery of Christ has recently been our subject and I may perhaps be permitted a few words to mention how the German section has just completed its first seven-year cycle. Founded seven years ago, there were a few branches in existence, barely ten. This number has now grown to over forty. The number seven is often referred to amongst anthroposophical insights and world conceptions, and it expresses a certain principle, that evolution often takes place in successive seven-year periods. We only need to remind ourselves of what has been touched upon, the evolution of our earth and how it goes through seven planetary conditions. Also on a smaller scale, for every single fact of world evolution, just as for a movement such as our spiritual scientific one, the law of the number seven pertains. Those who see deeper into our movement appreciate how, in a certain sense, this seven-year cycle has played out and how we are now at a decisive point where what gave an initial impetus is repeated at a higher level and can return, like circulation, to its beginnings. This could only happen by working methodically, by working in a truly spiritual mode, and not randomly nor haphazardly. You will also remember that in the human being we distinguish seven elements or components, initially a physical body, an ether body, an astral body, and an eye or ego. If an astral body is transformed by an eye, spirit self or manas arises. If this ego or I transmutes an ether body, life spirit or buddhi arises. If it ultimately transforms its physical body, the highest element of all can arise, spirit man or atma.
In this way we can distinguish four components and then a further three that result from a transformation of the initial three. If one now wishes to accomplish something in the world that incorporates such spiritual lawfulness, this great principle must be followed. If you now, as a young anthroposophical branch, wish to settle into this life in a correspondingly spiritual manner, as it were, it will be beneficial to determine how the organization of this work has progressed, because a young branch such as yours will appreciate how essential it is to reprise and to adhere to a developmental law such as this. We have kept to this rhythm in the German movement. The first four years were devoted to gathering everything necessary for acquiring world concepts that originate in spiritual science. We first set out the sevenfold nature of the human being, the teaching of karma and reincarnation, the great cosmic laws, Saturn, Sun and Moon evolutions, the laws of human evolution, and this is now in our literature and is being worked on in the various branches. This took place in the first four years. In the last three years, we have not systematically extended this, but have instead, as it were, planted loftier wisdom into the material of the first four years' subjects, and then ascended to a conception of the very highest individuality ever to have walked the earth, the individuality of Christ Jesus. Substance we could not have broached had we done so with a collection of unfamiliar concepts. We could only speak of Christ after having communicated the nature of the human being in general. We could only grasp what this deed of Christ's signifies once we had understood human nature in all its stages. Those of you who heard the Basel lectures on St. Luke's Gospel and others who heard something here or there will know what extremely complex processes took place. For instance, how could we have understood that during the twelfth year of his life something highly significant befell one of the Jesus boys? Had we not been aware of what takes place between the ages of twelve and fifteen? Systematic preparations were made before we, with the deepest reverence, attempted to comprehend the mightiest truths of our earthly epoch inherent in the name of Christ Jesus. It was like an ascent to ever higher heights. In this way it became possible to observe Christ Jesus in connection with the Gospels of St. Luke and St. John. As was emphasized last time in Basel, nobody should believe they know much about the nature or essence of that lofty being on the basis of having heard all the truths connected with these two Gospels. They will only have experienced a single aspect. It is definitely not to be thought superfluous, nor does it merely constitute some kind of renewal to hear of such realities from other angles too. The Gospels relate to each other as varying images of the one mighty event that took place in Palestine, each evangelist describing it from a particular vantage point. The day before yesterday in Bern, I outlined what was happening in the various branches. For certain reasons I tried to allude in sketch form and on the basis of the Luke Gospel to Christ. This was done for quite specific reasons. 
spiritual science is intended to be an outlook on life and not a theory nor a doctrine. It is intended to transform our innermost life of soul. We need to learn to view the world in a completely fresh way. There is one attribute that we need to acquire, one which a person should increasingly absorb through the insights brought by anthroposophy. There is no apposite word for this trait in any language but spiritual science will find a word for this new heart sensing, this heart perception. Until then, we can only use words that do exist for this new trait. It is humble modesty. It is this that must take root ever more ardently in our souls, particularly in face of records such as the Gospels, which bring us tidings of the most significant event in earth evolution. Here we learn that fundamentally we can only draw closer very slowly to the truths and insights essential for fathoming the Christ conundrum. We learn to cultivate a completely new feeling within ourselves, one quite foreign to modern people, who tend to be so hasty in their appraisal of this event. We learn to be circumspect in our portrayal of such truths, and we know that once we have focused on one aspect, we have only viewed that single aspect and never the whole event at once. This is connected with something else, and we will only very gradually gain any understanding of it, and that is, why are there actually four Gospels? The fact is that even theology is relatively materialistic as far as understanding is concerned, and the premises upon which comparisons are made between the four Gospels are superficial, and here contradictions are noticed. We initially looked at one of these, St. John's Gospel. What is outwardly presented for our understanding, say, such people, contradicts so starkly what the other three Gospels describe that one can only approach any concept of this Gospel if one maintains that the writer had no intention of describing actual situations, but was instead writing some kind of hymn, some kind of witness avowal, that reflected his sentient perceptions. Some see a great and comprehensive poem in St. John's Gospel, and in doing so they reduce its stature as a record. Only a superficial materialistic view does this, for we have also focused on the other three Gospels. Even in those paradoxes are found, but these are explained by the Gospels being written at differing times. In short, people nowadays are well on their way to tearing these mighty events to shreds to an extent that they no longer have significance for humanity. Spiritual science is directly called upon to reveal why we have four testimonies about the events in Palestine and challenged to reclaim these testaments for spiritual science. Why do four Gospels exist? People's thinking has not always been as it is today. There was a time when the Gospels were not in the hands of populations, but were confined to the very few, that minority tasked with leading spiritual life in the first centuries of Christianity. Why does nobody today ask whether those early leaders were not complete fools 
not to notice that the Gospels contradicted each other? Were they so mentally befogged that they simply did not see these paradoxes? Did those paragons of their age just accept these documents by humbly turning their gaze aloft and rejoicing that four Gospels exist, of which today's humanity can only say that they are no genuine testament because they contain contradictions? Now, without allowing this to deter us, let us turn our attention to how in the first centuries of Christianity the Gospels were received and how they should be received. They were received in those distant times in a way that can be evaluated as follows. If we take this bunch of flowers here and photograph it from four angles, the result will be four photographs. Seen singly, in isolation, these four will look different from each other. Yet, seeing one such photo, one can nevertheless gain an idea of a bouquet. Now, someone comes along and picks up a photo of a different angle. The two are compared, and it is agreed that they are different pictures, that they are not of the same subject. And yet, a more rounded picture has been gained. Only when all four photos of the bouquet, taken from all four angles, are compared, will one have a fairly complete concept of the actual bouquet. This is how the four Gospels are to be understood, characterizing, as they do, the same facts as seen from multiple aspects. Why is a single fact described from four differing angles? Because it was known that each evangelist, having written one of these Gospels, was imbued with great self-effacing humility, a humility that spoke to each writer. This is the greatest event in earth evolution. You may not attempt to describe this comprehensively, but may only endeavor to portray it to the extent that your own experience and knowledge make possible. In true humility, did the writer of Luke's Gospel refrain from depicting any aspect other than the one with which he was familiar, by virtue of his special spiritual abilities, which prompted him to say, Christ Jesus was the individuality in whom was manifest the highest revelation of love, a love extending to self-sacrifice. How did this love manifest itself? The writer of Luke's Gospel said of himself, I am not capable of describing the entire phenomenon, and I will therefore confine myself to describing one aspect, the aspect of love. You will understand this restriction to a single facet by the writers of the Gospels if we look into initiation methods in service of the ancient mysteries. The actions of the evangelists can only be understood in this context. As you know, initiation leads human beings into higher suprasensory worlds, enabling them to dwell within and penetrate these higher supersensible spheres by raising soul forces, elevating those forces and capabilities, usually concealed and dormant in human souls. Initiations such as these have always existed. In pre-Christian times they existed in Egypt and Chaldea, leading those sufficiently mature in soul into higher realms. This took place in unique manner 
by working in a way no longer fully possible today. The modern human being has, as you know, three soul forces, thinking, feeling, and willing. These three soul forces are used in everyday life, such that all three forces, in their relation with the external world, are, as it were, deployed actively, take active part. An example should illustrate how these three soul forces are active. You are walking across a field. You see a flower. You imagine the flower and you think, I like that flower. You feel that the flower is beautiful. This feeling has now been joined onto your thinking. And then you long to pick the flower, activating your will. Thus thinking, feeling and willing are active in your soul. Now you view human life in its entirety. Inasmuch as life plays out at a soul level, thinking, feeling and willing are intermingled. Human beings go through life with these three forces melded in continual interplay. Souls live in thinking, feeling and willing. Once a person is led into higher worlds, their path involves an elaboration of these three soul forces as they existed in ordinary life. Thinking can be developed into spiritual vision. Feeling and willing can also be augmented into spiritual dimensions. This is initiation. Those among you who have had a look at the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Attained?, will have read what happens when thinking, feeling and willing are transmuted into spiritual worlds. What then takes place is often referred to as, quote, the splitting of the personality, close quote. Thinking, feeling and willing are normally bound together organically. The person thinks, feels and wills as a unified personality. However, when developed upward into spiritual realms, these forces tear apart. Whereas they were previously forces, they now become independent beings once evolved into spirit worlds. Three independent entities now emerge, one thought-like, another feeling-like, and a third a will-like being. Therein lies the danger that the individuality soul could be completely rent asunder. If the right gradual path of knowledge has not been followed, a person can still raise their thinking into higher worlds. They will see into those realms, but they will remain transfixed. They can subdue their will, or it can stray onto divergent paths. What is setting in nowadays is that the human eye, capital, can stride beyond itself, that the eye can become a ruler, can reign as king over all three soul forces, over thinking, feeling, and willing. This was not the case in ancient times. In pre-Christian mystery centers, the axiom of division of labor pertained. For instance, someone admitted to a mystery center might be told, you are particularly suited to the work of developing your thinking. Their thinking was then the focus for expansion and by raising it to higher levels, eventually resulting in a sage or magus who could penetrate the spiritual connections behind sense-perceptible events. This was one category of initiate from the ancient mystery centers, 
sages, or magi. Other neophytes were trained in these mystery centers to awaken the dormant forces primarily of feeling, leaving their thinking and willing in abeyance in their original states. Feeling was elevated. When feeling is principally elevated in an individual, they attain certain special characteristics. There is a significant difference between someone whose feeling was trained in a mystery center of old and a person of today. The sole psychic reach or influence of a person thus schooled was far greater than would be the case today. The developed forces of such a soul could exert a powerful influence over the soul of their surrounding region. For this reason, those especially initiated into the sphere of feeling became the healers of their peers. Having evolved through the sacrificial service of feeling, they were called to work therapeutically, bringing health to their fellow humans. A third category of initiate consisted of those whose will was especially cultivated. These were the magicians or magi of will. Thus there were three kinds of initiate, magicians, healers, and sages, all of whom received their initiations in the mystery centers of yore. Nowadays, it would not be possible to cultivate just one element of a person's character because it is no longer possible to create such a high degree of harmony among modern individuals as held sway in ancient mystery centers. The individual who became a sage in one such mystery center would, as it were, renounce this harmony. That is how things were conducted. Whoever became a healer would carry out with the greatest deference a sage's directions, foregoing the sage's lofty wisdom and placing their power of feeling at the disposal of the wise man. Alongside these three groupings within the mystery centers, there was an essential fourth group. Situations arose where no single group of initiates could reach the right perspective to effectively affect the outer world. Some things could be affected by initiates of any one of the specialized cohorts named only because an additional fourth grouping of individuals existed. This consisted of individuals who were suited for initiation by virtue of their gifts and who were told that the high level of initiation attained by the sages, the healers, and the magicians was not possible for those in this fourth category. Yet it was possible to advance each of the three soul forces of the other categories to a certain level in this group. No single soul force was developed to as high a degree as was the case in the one-sided initiates, the sages, the healers, and the magi of will. Yet a certain harmony of all three combined traits existed in this fourth group. An initiate of this group inwardly presented an harmonious synthesis of all three soul faculties trained by the more specialized initiates. Now, in certain circumstances, it was necessary to set aside one's individuality and to resort to advice from someone on, uh, as it were, lower level. There were times in those ancient mystery centers when neither sages nor healers nor indeed magicians 
made decisions, but instead placed their forces at the disposal of this fourth group of initiates, less highly developed though they were. Nevertheless, it was in their service that they placed their forces. The outcome of this was invariably that world evolution took a greater forward step as a result of those higher initiates listening to those, in quotes, beneath them. Such was the case in Eastern mystery centers. Those more highly initiated placed their forces at the disposal of the fourth category, were advised by them, and obeyed them unquestioningly. In European mystery centers, councils of twelve initiates existed, at the head of which stood a thirteenth, uninitiated individual, to whom they deferred. He it was who decided what should happen, relying on his instinctive will, while those higher placed than him would carry out his instructions. You will only understand this by looking back at those times when great trust was still placed in a being in the world who was not bound to human thinking and willing. Nowadays people consider themselves the cleverest in the world. This has not always been so. There were times when people said to themselves, Yes, it is true that I can progress to higher levels. I am capable of this. But to say that I am already the most advanced creature in the world cannot be a presumption I can make. The veracity of this can be illustrated by another example. Let us remember that it was only over the course of human history that paper was gradually devised, an activity through which various substances were amalgamated to create the fabric of paper. Wasps have long been able to do this. Now people ought to reflect. I had to acquire my knowledge relatively recently. The wasp cannot have learned its skill from humans. Divine artistry holds sway in the wasp's ability. Wasp's creativity is suffused with divine wisdom. In similar manner were those councils of twelve initiates ensouled when they would assemble in pre-Christian times and reflect of themselves, we have certainly evolved higher faculties in ourselves, but for all our forces and aptitudes, we can only really attain to a level ordained by divine beings in individuals of lower capacity. They looked toward a thirteenth who, by comparison with them, had remained at a naive and childlike stage. They said, unlike us, he contains no great human wisdom, but yet he is steeped in divine sagacity, in heavenly wisdom. Similarly, the Eastern sages, healers, and magicians would say, we follow one who is not yet as advanced as us, but one who is at a level where they are still saturated with divine wisdom. This renunciation, this forbearance, lay unfurled like a magical breath or pall across the mystery centers that possessed this knowledge. Now, you will remember the poem by Goethe called The Mysteries, where a thirteenth individual, a brother Marcus, is introduced into the circle of momentous men. Here we see an occurrence deeply grounded in human nature albeit a nature far removed from modern humans. 
which consists of an initiate of the fourth grouping, who has not advanced through the power of his own effort to a level as high as the others, and yet who is regarded with such reverence that he leads the other twelve. We therefore have four kinds of initiate, healers, sages, magicians, and a fourth kind who are given the designation, in quotes, human being, in this unique sense. For such initiates set about depicting the greatest event in earth evolution, a wise sage, a healer, a magus, and a human being, in the sense of the fourth category of initiates. One of them describes this from the standpoint of the common person. One is the magus, who focuses primarily on the will nature of Christ, and who covertly brings these forces into his gospel. Also, the healer, who wrote the Luke gospel, and is the source of the tradition that St. Luke was a physician, which corresponds with his self-sacrificing love of his fellow human beings. Then there is the sage who writes about Christ's wisdom-filled nature. These are the four initiates who, refraining from describing a totality, reflected, we can only depict the aspect closest to our own soul. The reverent modesty of these four human beings, each of whom has relinquished describing Christ in all his aspects, and has restricted themselves to describing the being whom they can see, in terms of their own individuality, as a mighty and exalted being. All this stands as a stance in contrast to modern consciousness, which has no doubt that it can comprehensively encompass the highest phenomena with its reason. Having shed light on two sides of this immense event during the Basel lectures on the Gospels of Luke and John, Today I will say something about Matthew's Gospel. We could just as well have spoken about the Gospel according to Mark, but there are reasons why, having taken on to describe a little of this vast event from the standpoint of spiritual science, I now choose to consider St. Matthew's Gospel after the Luke and John Gospels. The reason for this is that one must gain a feeling as to how one can draw closer to an understanding of this world event in all its self-effacing humility. In the Gospels of St. Luke and St. John, we learn of great truths. What we face in Mark's Gospel, however, is in part so shattering that if one has not previously heard the various facts relating to Matthew's Gospel, one might well believe that there are profoundly irreconcilable differences between Mark's Gospel and the other Gospels. One would not be able to cope with Mark's Gospel, because there we are told the most momentous and shocking truths in the world, albeit not the loftiest, which are to be found in St. John's Gospel. This is why today I will speak about St. Matthew's Gospel. We saw in our studies of the Luke Gospel how the most diverse spiritual streams present in the world poured themselves into forming a single communal stream at the time in which the Christ events came to pass. It was shown how, on the one hand, the teaching of love and compassion streamed into Christianity from the Buddha. On the other hand, the teachings of Zarathustra were also shown to have flowed into Christianity. 
All the other pre-Christian spiritual streams likewise converged within this momentous phenomenon. In Matthew's Gospel we see particularly how the ancient Hebrew spiritual stream, the spiritual stream of ancient Jewry, joined the confluence, so that in order to understand Matthew's Gospel we have to speak about the true mission of the ancient Jewish people. As you know, spiritual research does not only draw on the Gospels as its source, but also on the spiritual world, on the eternal Akashic Chronicle. Were all the Gospels to perish through some catastrophe on earth, spiritual research into the events in Palestine would still be in a position to recount those events. If we compare what the purest sources make available to spiritual research with the great testimonies of the evangelists, the most wonderful congruity, eliciting deep awe in face of the Gospels, becomes manifest. This congruity makes clear to us from which high source the Gospels must originate. For the writers of the Gospels tell us what we can only understand once we are schooled in the glimpses afforded us by spiritual science. What then is the mission of the Hebrew people? In order to understand this, we need to look back at the course of human evolution. You know that present human faculties have evolved, that these human faculties have evolved all by themselves in a belief to which only materialistic science subscribes, and it sees no farther than the end of its nose. At best, it still believes mankind evolved from animals, yet is in no position to retrace this route to actual soul faculties. Spiritual science knows that these soul aptitudes are not the same as today's. In olden times, humanity possessed what we could call dim twilight clairvoyance. Only later did present consciousness gradually emerge from this clairvoyance. There was a definite starting point, a moment at which this way of imagining interposed itself into humanity. If we turn our gaze back to ancient Indian culture, we find a sort of clairvoyance. Modern people have to look at their surroundings and see the things they wish to get to know. The way in which the ancient Indians looked They did not get to know the things surrounding them. Science, even as taught to children today, did not then exist. A wise man in ancient India acquired his wisdom through inner intuition, turning away from the outer world and reposing within himself or within his higher being. This he would call his union with Brahma. He received his knowledge through inner intuition. This was knowledge entirely based on inner clairvoyant intuition. Outer knowledge for him was, by contrast, maya or illusion. This clairvoyance receded ever further. By the time of proto-Persian culture, outer observation had become firmly blended with the inner knowledge that was still prevalent. Similarly, inner intuition was present in the third cultural epoch, even though people had progressed in their grasp Of outer matters. In ancient Chaldea, what we would today call astrology, a kind of stellar science, existed. Today's external science knows nothing about the essence of astrology. 
However closely you interrogate the stone records, you will uncover nothing about the actual nature of astrology. Nobody today can elicit the feeling the ancient Chaldeans had for astrology. This was no knowledge garnered from observation of the starry heavens. Ancient Chaldeans did not study the physical planet Mars by turning their gaze toward it, but what could be learned of Mars arose inwardly by allowing in-pouring clairvoyant knowledge to radiate within. This was no external calculating, and no awareness existed of the tidings such knowledge could bring about external space. The first concepts of familiarity with the stellar world were to be found in the ancient centers of initiation. Of all that was taught there about the evolution of the earth and the connection of earth with Mars, we still retain a certain knowing that emanates from within. Similarly, Egyptian geometry was knowledge that emanated from within and was only used for surveying purposes. The Chaldeans of yore were the first who should have been able to unfold other forces, enabling them to acquire outer knowledge. The mission to lead humanity toward externally consolidated knowledge was allocated to the Hebrew peoples by the spiritual leaders of world evolution. The combined knowledge of the ancient Indians, Persians, Chaldeans, and Egyptians, significant though it was, did not require a physical brain. Such knowledge was not based in the physical brain, but in freely functioning ether bodies. When human beings become freely active in their ether bodies, images arise that account for the knowledge possessed by those ancient peoples, just as today all clairvoyant knowledge arises at the point when a person is able to lift their ether body out of their physical body, no longer needing to make use of their physical brain. Humanity had to acquire the ability to perceive via their brains. To this end, a personality now had to be selected for the suitability of its brain. Those least susceptible to clairvoyant vision, yet able to use their brains, here we have another point on which reading the Akashic Record confirms facts in the Bible. What is written in the Bible is to the letter correct. It is true that people were chosen who on the basis of their physical configuration had the most suitable attributes for carrying out spiritual work by means of their brains. Just such a person was Abraham. He it was who was chosen to fulfill the mission of enabling his fellow human beings to reach a stage where they perceive the outer world by means of their brains. His was a personality least suited to receiving visions, one who thought logically, investigating external phenomena in terms of weight, measure, and number. An older tradition credits Abraham with being the inventor of mathematics, and this has more truth than today's material world can imagine. It was now a matter of introducing this mission into the world in the right way. Let us consider how a mission entrusted to a personality would in ancient times have been discharged, transferred into humanity for posterity. It was transmitted from teacher to pupil. Whoever had a vision or intuition would share it with their followers or descendants. But... What was entrusted to the old Hebrew peoples was linked to a physical instrument 
which could not simply be handed on to descendants if they did not possess brains fitted to the task. For this reason it had to be bound to physical heritage and had to be inheritable through the generations. Abraham had to be surrounded not by pupils, but by a people through whose generations such a brain could be inherited. In this sense, Abraham became the original ancestor, the father progenitor of his people. It is wonderful to see in the Bible how Abraham is entrusted with his mission by leading spiritual powers. What was to be given humankind through Abraham's mission? What had previously been endowed through vision was now to be rediscovered. It was to be won at a new level through calculation. And what was won through calculation was to reflect the laws and commandments. This is why Jehovah said, This mission shall be an image of the highest lawfulness known to us. He said, Your progeny shall be ordered like the stars in the heavens. It is totally incorrect when the Bible is translated as if Jehovah had said that Abraham's descendants should be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Instead, he said that they should procreate according to laws such that their propagation should be an expression of the same lawfulness to which the stars in the firmament are also subject. Abraham had a son Isaac and a grandson Jacob. We see how the twelve tribes of the Israelites stem from these two. These twelve tribes replicate the lawfulness of the twelve signs of the zodiac. From Abraham, a new order was to originate among peoples in emulation of the order of the stars. So we see how spiritual science is able to extract the true sense of what the Bible records. And we, in turn, gain the right picture of humanity's most profound document, Atavistic clairvoyance was to be excluded. No longer was humanity to avert its gaze from external existence. Thenceforth, humanity was to penetrate and delve into this outer world. This mission was a gift in the form of what humanity was to become. Abraham's task was to hand down to his descendants aptitudes of the brain. This was intended as a gift, and we see how Abraham receives the entire Jewish people as a gift. What could a spiritual power have given to Zarathustra? A teaching, something one-sidedly spiritual. But Abraham had to be endowed with his entire people, a very real present that was founded upon the proliferation of a certain physical brain. How was this people gifted to him? In that he was willing to sacrifice his son. Had he carried out this sacrifice, there would be no Jewish people. In receiving his son back, he also received the entire Jewish people, given to him as a gift by outside agency. At the moment when Abraham was to sacrifice his son, he received Isaac back. And in this he is given the entire Jewish people, all his descendants, as a reward. This is a gift from Yahweh Jehovah to Abraham. With this, the last of the visionary talents was given away. Individual gifts of clairvoyance are subdivided, such that there are twelve of them, each designated with the sign of the zodiac, because these are gifts from heaven. 
The last of these clairvoyant aptitudes was sacrificed by Abraham in return for the Israelite people. The ram that was to be sacrificed by Abraham in place of his son represents the last of these clairvoyant gifts. In this way the Jewish people received their mission to become familiar with the external world by evolving the faculties of calculation within their brains and by means of their own capabilities to investigate world phenomena right down into a certain unity which they imagined as Yahweh. This mission is taken so literally that all trace of the old inherited means of perception, clairvoyance, was banished from the Jewish people. Joseph had dreams of the old clairvoyant kind. He is cast out of the community because the task of the Hebrew peoples is to exclude this ancient faculty from their development. Joseph is therefore banished. However, he is then able to become the mediator between the Jewish people and what it had to absorb in fulfillment of its cultural mission. The sons of Abraham had renounced visions from within. Thus they had to receive from without what they would have received thanks to these visions. When they are led into Egypt, they receive this from Moses. They who are the missionaries of external physical thinking. What others still obtained in the form of inner visions, the Israelites were now given in the form of commandments. It is indeed so that what we call the Ten Commandments is the same as what other people were receiving as inner inspiration. The Jewish people accepted their commandments from Egypt by way of Moses and in external form, commandments that are actually celestial inspiration. Having been endowed with inspiration from Egypt, this people settled in Palestine, appointed, as they were, to give birth to one of the bearers of the Christ. Their aptitudes passed down from generation to generation, were to give rise to the physical embodiment of Jesus. For this reason, all the faculties present in Abraham had to accrue, to accumulate here. All jewelry had to mature and evolve such that what was present in Abraham as latent predisposition had to emerge in a descendant at its highest pinnacle. In order to understand this, we need to draw a comparison with the development of an individual person. In the first seven years of life, it is primarily the physical body that undergoes development. Between seven and fourteen or fifteen, the second phase of life, it is the ether body that unfolds and thereafter the astral body. Only then does the I or ego emerge. What initially exists as a predisposition only emerges once these three bodies have matured. This also applies to whole peoples. The nascent Abraham first had to be integrated into the physical, etheric, and astral bodies before it could be inhabited by an I. The evolution of the Hebrew peoples can be divided into three epochs. What takes place at age seven in an individual person can be extended to seven generations of a nation. You know how often, as regards inherited features, a son can resemble a grandfather rather than a father. In this way, two times seven, in other words, fourteen generations, may be necessary in order to replicate what in the individual takes place between birth and the change of teeth. Fourteen generations evolved the characteristics 
latent in the physical body of Abraham. Fourteen further generations were required for the ether body and another fourteen for the astral body. Only then did it become possible for one to reach the level of maturity needed by an entity such as the Christ being. Matthew describes this in the first chapter of his Gospel by saying that from Abraham to David there were fourteen constituent elements, from David to the Babylonian captivity another fourteen, and thereafter, until Jesus, another fourteen. Three times fourteen, or six times seven in all, had to pass. The writer of Matthew's Gospel laid out this deep wisdom as the foundation of his book. What constituted Abraham's ordained mission was also to flow into the body of Christ Jesus. But this could come to pass only through the lawful procession of the generations. In this way, the Jesus child, descended after forty-two generations from Abraham, could fulfill the mission of his original ancestor. Matthew depicts the wonderful lawfulness within which this takes place. Once a given cycle of evolution is completed, a short repetition of the earlier facts has to take place at a higher level, and we do indeed find one such in St. Matthew's Gospel that is marvelously described. Abraham comes from Ur in Chaldea, travels to Canaan, and then to Egypt, returning once more to Canaan. This is his journey. The reincarnated Zarathustra, six hundred years before our era, lived as a great teacher in the Chaldean mystery schools and was incarnated under the name of Zaratos. This was his last incarnation before he was reborn in Jesus. He now takes the same route as Abraham's. Starting in roughly the same place as did Abraham, he travels. In the spiritual world he follows the path that Abraham took to Bethlehem. Thus the route physically covered by Abraham is taken spiritually by Zarathustra. The successors of those who were his pupils six hundred years earlier follow him again in the star that leads them to Bethlehem. They take the path being taken by Zarathustra toward his incarnation. He arrives and is reborn in Canaan. In the Old Testament we come across a Joseph who following a dream is led to Egypt. Now we see a Joseph who following a dream is physically led to Egypt. Then the boy is physically guided back to where the Jewish people await the Redeemer. The ancient Jewish people received nourishment from Joseph in Egypt during the famine. Draw the line taken by the Magi on a map. Compare, moreover, the route to Egypt taken by Joseph, son of Jacob, with that taken by the Solomon, Jesus' child, and you will find that both these routes are relatively congruent. There are, albeit, several points of difference, but they are caused by other circumstances. This is the level of accuracy with which the writer of the Matthew Gospel describes the route taken. For just such reasons, of which we could have knowledge even if all the Gospels were to be lost, do we feel such awe and reverence for the Gospels. Humanity could reach ever higher truths and gain ever greater wisdom, the like of which can still hardly be imagined nowadays. Even if we will have far, far more wisdom concerning these monumental events 
in the coming millions of years. Such wisdom can equally be drawn from the Gospels. This is a measure of what can bring us closer to an understanding of the Christ event. Just as the teachings of Buddha and those of Zarathustra, so also has the being of the Hebrew people flowed into the individuality of Christ Jesus. Everything that had hitherto appeared on earth was reborn in higher guise through Christianity. Everything that constitutes all spiritual cultures that had ever existed on earth existed for the reason that Christ, the great leader of earth evolution, sent to earth those to whom he had given the task of preparing on earth for what he had to fulfill. While still in the heights of heaven, he sent his emissaries ahead. They, the great founders of religions, were to prepare humankind for his coming. The last of these heralds was Buddha, who brought the teaching of compassion and love. There were other early bodhisattvas, and there will be more in future, whose task it will be to build upon all that has been brought to earth through Christ Jesus. It will be beneficial for human beings to pay heed to what those later bodhisattvas have to tell, for they are servants of Christ. Each time a bodhisattva of the future appears, for example, in around three thousand years, we will be helped, somewhat the better, to understand the Christ who irradiates all things. Christ it is who is the utmost profound of all beings. And the others exist with the sole objective that the Christ be better understood. This is why we say that Christ sent the bodhisattvas ahead in order to prepare humankind for his coming. And he sends them also after the event, so that this greatest of deeds in earth evolution shall be ever more fully understood. We are only at the very beginning of comprehending this being, and we will realize his being ever better, the more wise men, sages, and bodhisattvas come to earth. By dint of all the wisdom thus poured out into earth existence, we will become ever more capable of recognizing the Christ. We exist on earth as seeking human beings. We have made a start at struggling toward an understanding of the Christ. What we have recognized about him we have put to use and will in future be putting to use. Whatever those future bodhisattvas will teach us with the aim of better comprehending that master of all bodhisattvas, the fulcrum, the turning point of all our structures and systems. In this way, humanity will increase in wisdom and will become ever more adept at recognizing the Christ. Humankind will only encompass Him when the last of the bodhisattvas has fulfilled their duty to its very conclusion, having brought the necessary teachings to empower us to conceive of this most profound of beings in all earth existence, the Christ Jesus. The end of Lecture 8